0: Turn, if you would, to the eighth chapter of the book of Matthew. We did, in fact, finish off the Sermon on the Mount before we left for Easter. I trust everyone had a good Easter. I went looking for Easter eggs. I was blindfolded looking for Easter eggs, tied to my daughter, who was telling me where to look for Easter eggs. Kind of strange. About 31 weeks ago, we started the book of Matthew. And I have this feeling I need to reintroduce the book because for the last 25 weeks of it, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7, which is the longest single recorded sermon we have from Jesus Christ himself. So Matthew, the book was written to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. He is the Messiah. He is coming to the nation of Israel to present to them his Messiahship. And they are going to reject him. If you remember, we had John the Baptist proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. We had Jesus beginning his earthly ministry, which was basically... Almost copying John the Baptist. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He began to uh, work miracles. He began to call his disciples. What we're going to see is more miracles, more teaching, more calling of disciples. If you remember... Two weeks ago, we finished up the Sermon on the Mount and it says that the people were amazed because Jesus spoke as one who had authority, not like their other teachers. Just his mere presence, his voice somehow communicated to the people that he was the authority. What we're going to see in chapter 8 and chapter 9 are miracles... ...and teaching and examples of Jesus demonstrating that he does, in fact, have the authority of God. There is some discussion about the chronology in the book of Matthew... ...because Matthew has a tendency to group things together. Like he will take a group of healings and put them together. He'll take a group of parables and put them together... So we're not going to spend a lot of time getting too wrapped up in the exact chronology of this. But we're going to talk about a set of healings, a set of miraculous events where he demonstrates, where Jesus demonstrates his authority as the Son of God. Okay? Chapter 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, a great crowd, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. We'll just stop right there. He had finished this great sermon of his. Mobs of people. So he decides to start heading down the mountain. And in the midst of this crowd, up comes a man with leprosy. Now, in and of itself, that is a phenomenal event. Because a leper was required to live away from the community, outside the camp, if you will. If you go back to the Old Testament, it's kind of interesting to me that in the book of Leviticus, there are multiple chapters describing what you're supposed to do with someone who may or may not have leprosy. You know, you try this, and if it doesn't work ten days later, you try this, and if it doesn't work... 20 days later, you kick him out of the community, and he cannot come back to the community. Why? Because he is unclean. If you look at all those Old Testament laws, it is demonstrating that the nation of Israel is a holy people set apart for God, and those things that are unclean have to be removed from the community. So he would would have been living out in some camp somewhere away from the normal people. And here in the midst of this crowd, he comes up to Jesus. Why would he do that? Well, it's obvious. He's desperate. I mean, let's face it. To the best of my knowledge, there is no cure for leprosy that was available at this time. There just wasn't. Except... Removal from the community to stop the infection. And that's the life this individual was living. So he comes to Jesus and he simply says, If you will, if you want to, you are capable of making me clean. That's an interesting acknowledgement on his part. That is an example of faith on his part. It isn't a question of can he do it. How did he know he could do it? Well, first off, there had been other healings. We know that. I suspect just listening to the teaching convinced him that Jesus was someone special. So he comes to Jesus and says, you can heal me. No question about that. If you want to. If you will, you can heal me. Now, let's just stop right there for a moment. Why wouldn't Jesus want to? I don't know. I don't know why he wouldn't want to. We need to have a brief discussion, though, just a brief discussion, about the whole ministry of healing. Jesus is going to heal a bunch of people in the book of Matthew. I mean, to the point that we almost get so used to it, we begin to not understand or appreciate the magnitude of what he was doing. He is going to heal a boatload of people. Did Jesus come to heal people? Hmm. Should we have a vote on this? Those who say yes, those who say no? Well, the Old Testament prophets had said the Messiah would come healing people. We're going to see that in just a moment. We're going to see that when we have a discussion about John the Baptist, and John the Baptist sends his disciples over, and they say, are you the Messiah? And he says, check off the list. Cast out demons, heal people, cause the blind to see, check, check, check. What do you think? So the... Old Testament prophets said the Messiah was going to come to heal people, but his mission was not to heal people. The healing was the sign that demonstrated who he really was. He was, in fact, the Messiah. It's like when the apostles began their ministry after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus... They were given the power to heal people to demonstrate that they were, in fact, the representatives of God. I raise this to repeat what we have said in here before. Our church and I believe that there were certain gifts given to the early church that are not necessarily applicable today, one of those being the gift of healing. The other being the gift of tongues. That's a whole different topic. What we are not saying, and don't leave here thinking we're saying, is that Jesus doesn't heal people today. God heals people today, but given the fact that we have the Scripture, which is the Word of God, given to us, it is not necessary to authenticate us as individual believers, by having the gift of healing. It's a phenomenal thing if you start reading about missionaries today working around the world where God uses miraculous gifts to demonstrate to the pagan people that God is real. Why do we not do it here? Good question. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. Suffice it to say, Jesus is healing these people to demonstrate that he is the Messiah. He spoke as one who had authority. He's going to live as one who has authority. If you will, you can heal me, is what the leper says. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. I will do what you ask. I will perform the request. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now I found this fascinating forever, okay? Remember I just said, in the book of Leviticus, there's all this discussion about what to do with somebody who has a skin disease. You do this to show that, and that doesn't work. If this doesn't work, they have leprosy, and you kick them out of the camp. Well, in addition to that, there's a whole set of laws about what to do when somebody is cured of leprosy. They go to the priest, they bring this series of sacrifices, and they demonstrate to the priest, look, my hand is fine. And the priest goes, check. Sacrifice, check. Next sacrifice, check. And you are allowed back into the community. My question is simply this. They had all these rules for how to check somebody back into the community. How many times do you think this had ever happened in the history of the Jewish community? How many times had a known leper gone to the priest and said, look at me, I'm cured. I'll make a a, a conservative guess. Zero. Zero. We have examples of people in the Old Testament being cured of leprosy. You know, Miriam kind of rebelled against Moses and God kind of zapped her. And God, mean, and Moses prayed, and God cured her. Okay? Kind of a miraculous event. But she wasn't living outside the camp for years and years. We had foreigners who had leprosy. And some little servant girl said, Well, go to Israel. There's a prophet over there that will cure you. So this guy goes to the king of Israel and says, Cure me. And the king says, Who do you think I am? God. That's his quote. Because they knew the only person that was going to cure anybody of leprosy was God. Now, just imagine this picture. Just imagine, yo. This is a movie. You're watching it. You're this priest. You're sitting at the temple doing your priestly things. You're probably bored to death. You've done the same priestly things every day of your life forever. And you're bored to death. And in walks this guy who looks perfectly normal. Perfectly normal. And he walks up to you and says, My name is on the list of lepers. And I'm here to show you that I no longer have leprosy. And you're the priest and you go somebody's playing a game on me because nobody is cured of leprosy. Nobody. Jesus is sending a calling card to the priest saying, here I am. And who am I? I'm the Messiah. What should the priest have done? He should have jumped up shouted hallelujah, praised the Lord, grabbed all the priests, gone to Jesus, bowed on their knees, and welcomed the Messiah. What indication do we have that they did any of that? Not a bit. It's, oh shoot, who's out there and what is he going to do to us? And we begin to see the building opposition to Jesus because Jesus is going to upset everything that they know about their religious life. Jesus says, here it is. Moses wrote, wrote all of these rules thousand years ago for this day. And I'm sending you the guy that is the proof that it happened. And we get no response. Now, it is interesting. He tells Jesus, tells the leper, don't tell anybody else. We're going to see this several times, and if you read some of the other Gospels, he tells that to them, and they ignore him. I mean, let's face it. You ought to do what Jesus tells you to do. But you can understand the temptation, right? I'm running home and telling Mom, step one, okay? I'm going to go tell all those people that Were my friends. I'm going to go tell all those people that insulted me because I had been thrown outside of the community and now I am back in. And he does. He goes and he tells everyone. And he goes to the priest and gets no response. So what do we learn from this? How many people that you know of personally at this point in history, with this level of medical understanding, knew how to cure leprosy. None except one. And what did he do? Dream up some concoction of a medicine, a salve, or something? to No. He just spoke. I will be clean. And it was done. Remember that. Because that's the pattern we're going to see. Occasionally, Jesus, for some reason, does kind of mix up a concoction. You know, a little mud, a little this, a little that. But most of the time, it's he speaks and it happens. Jesus spoke as one who had authority. His authority was that he was and is the Son of God. How do we know that? He looked a guy in the eye who had leprosy. He touched him. Don't get me started on that one. He touched him, and the leprosy was gone. End of story. Why? How do we know that we should do what Jesus tells us to do? Because you can't do that. I can't do that. There's not a doctor in this city that can do that. But Jesus could. When he, had, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, "Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly." Now, we have a leper, outside of the community. Outside of the community, because he was unclean and was not allowed in. But at least he was probably a Jewish leper. Okay? A Roman centurion walks up to Jesus. A Roman pagan centurion walks up to Jesus. Your country is being occupied by a foreign power right now. If you read a little Jewish history, the Jews started fighting amongst themselves and one of the sides said, you know what we need to do? We need some help. So they invited the Romans to come help them overpower the other side that they were fighting. Bad mistake. Don't ever invite the Romans to come help you because they're going to stay. And at this point in history, the only thing that unifies the Jewish community, is that they all hate the Romans because the Romans are occupying their land. The Romans are interfering with them. The Romans are taxing them. More on that when we get to the call of Matthew. The Romans are taxing them. They just don't like each other at all. And a Roman centurion, a centurion is an officer over a 100 people. Depending on where you were in Roman history, it might have been 80, but they still call them centurions. But a hundred people, he was in charge of them, and he has a servant. Now, this is interesting, that this Roman centurion would care about this servant of his, but he does. And in fact, depending on the commentaries you read, this centurion is probably a rather nice guy, okay? Okay. He is concerned about the well-being of his servant. He had heard through the grapevine that this guy was healing people. So he says, I'll go see him. He walks up to Jesus. He probably has a couple of guards with him. Jesus has a crowd with him, all of which hate the Romans. And he walks up to Jesus and he says, Lord, let's just stop right there. Here we have a good old-fashioned pagan addressing Jesus as Lord. Why would he do that? Because he knew something was different. Why did he know something was different? He had been listening and watching what was happening. Lord, my servant is laying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he, Jesus, said to him, the centurion, I will come and heal him. Now, that's a very magnanimous gesture on the part of Jesus. I am willing to enter the home of a Roman centurion in order to take care of those in need. I'm willing to do that. I mean, Jesus is going to get in trouble for eating at the house of tax collectors and, heaven forbid, sinners. Jesus is willing to go where the need is. And he tells the guy, Okay, I'm with you. I'm coming to help. And then something very interesting happens. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you under my roof. I, you're, you're a great guy. I'm a Roman soldier. I'm not worthy. Why is this a demonstration of faith? The Roman soldier tells you, I am in a position of authority. And trust me, this Roman centurion was in a position of authority. You misbehave, he would have you executed and nobody would argue about it. He could just do it. He would tell a soldier, you stand over there and stand guard. And that soldier would stand over there and stand guard. And if he fell asleep, he died. He would tell this soldier, go over there and get this and bring it back. He would tell these people, go capture that person. And they would go capture that person. Because he spoke with authority. He understood the reality of authority. Now, at this point, we can have a long digression about the fact that our society today does not understand or accept authority of any form or fashion, but that's a whole different story. The centurion didn't have that problem. The centurion understood that I, being over these people, had the right to tell them what to do. And what is he telling Jesus? Jesus, I know that here you are, here's that disease, and if you speak, it goes. Wow. Jesus said, that's cool. (coughs) Remember, Jesus just sent this leper to the priest to tell him, and the priest did nothing that's recorded. Why? Because the priest didn't acknowledge Jesus' authority. When it was very clear, nobody else would have done the healing, but Jesus did. This centurion, before the healing has occurred, says, if you speak, it will happen, because I know authority when I see it. Because you see, this centurion not only had people under him, he also had people above him. And when they said go, he went. When they said stand, he stood. He understood authority. And he recognized the authority in Jesus and he said, you don't need to come to my house. All you have to do is speak. And it will be done. Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's just look at the two people that we've been dealing with. Not the people being healed. The priest who is in. I mean, he's in, in the community. So he thinks. The Roman centurion, he's out. Out, out. He carries a sword. He intimidates us. He kills us. He's out. And Jesus stands in the middle and says, This guy is going to sit at dinner with Abraham. The picture is amazing because you didn't invite just anybody over for dinner. That was a sign of intimacy and I have brought you into my home and I have recognized you as a friend. This centurion is going to sit down for dinner with Abraham. And not just him. Lots of people from the east and from the west. I mean, it's just, you go right, you go left, they're all coming, and they're going to sit at the dinner table. While this guy, who thinks that he's a child of the kingdom, who thinks that he is in, is going to be thrown out into utter darkness. It's a horrible metaphor if you just think about it. Dark, dark. I began by telling you, last Sunday, Easter, I was looking for Easter eggs with a blindfold around my eyes in my mother's backyard. There's lots of things to run into in my mother's backyard. And it took a while for my daughter to figure out that it was up to her to keep me from running into things. Why? Because it was dark. I couldn't see. And Jesus says, you who think you're in are going to be thrown into utter darkness where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. But there's going to be people. And I might add, that's most of us. Unless you happen to be Jewish, this is all of us. We are going to be invited to sit at Abraham's table for dinner. What's the difference? Nowhere in Israel have I seen such faith as I see in this pagan guy. I don't know if the pagan was a believer before he came, but I would bet good money that he was a a believer after he came. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. You can imagine. I don't know how far away home was, but the centurion and his guards are walking home. And they get to the door, and somebody says, The most amazing thing has happened. Your servant, who you were concerned about is healed. And the the centurion says, I know. (laughs) Let me tell you what time of the day it happened. Because I was there when it happened there. And I knew who did it. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law laying sick with a fever. No mother-in-law jokes. He saw his mother-in-law laying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill. Here it is. Here is the book of Matthew, what he's trying to demonstrate to us. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Why did Jesus heal people? To demonstrate that he was the Messiah, that he is the Messiah. Matthew is looking at his Jewish audience, and he's saying, go back and read those Old Testament prophecies... He wouldn't have called it the Old Testament. It was the only testament they had. Go read those prophecies. Go read those scrolls and see what the Messiah is going to do. Here's the guy. Just take that checklist and start marking them off the list. Now, what did they want the Messiah to do? Kick out the Romans. What is Jesus doing? He's healing the Romans' servants. Doesn't quite jive with what they want. So, his mother-in-law is sick. Peter's mother-in-law is sick. Jesus comes in, heals her, and she gets up and goes to work. Now, you can make some joke about that. You know, she's sick on her deathbed, and she has to go serve dinner. But what it really is, is a demonstration of the healing power of God, you've been sick. We were talking about this morning being sick. You get sick and you get well. But what do you do? You're just weak. You're worn out. You need weeks to get back to normal. You know, I spent a week in the hospital and it took me a month to get over it. Why? Because our bodies just take time to heal. Unless Jesus says... You're well. And guess what? You're well. And you hop up and you go do what you've done before. There isn't this great, oh, well, let me sit here for another month and recover from my illness. You're well at that point. Now, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So, you get the... Picture here, okay? He's had his big thing, he's gone to Peter's house, which by the way is real close to where the Sermon on the Mount occurred. You can actually go to Peter's house today, by the way. It's kind of weird. I asked Doug Cecil, I said, Is this really Peter's house? He said, Well, it could be. (laughs) No, but think about it. I mean, Peter was an important person to the Christian community. The fact that they remembered where his house was. Wouldn't have been that odd. But actually, there's a building built off the ground with a glass floor that is on top of Peter's house. So you walk and you look down on the remnants of supposedly Peter's house. Real close to where the Sermon on the Mount was taught. So he's had this mob at the Sermon on the Mount. He's been healing all these people. He's taking care of this and he's getting ready to leave. That's the picture. Guy walks up to him and says, teacher, no, I'll go with you wherever you want to go. Now, it's rather fascinating because this is one of the scribes. Remember the scribes, and the Pharisees, all those people that are trying to get Jesus. Teacher, I will go with you wherever you're going. Nice, big, bold statement. What does Jesus say? And Jesus says to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Scribe, you're welcome to come. But we're not staying at the best restaurants. I mean hotels. We're not eating at the best restaurants. We are going to be nowhere. And we are going to live as we move. We're going to preach the gospel. And guess what? It's going to be really bad. We're not told what happens to the guy. But you can't accuse Jesus of not putting it out there and telling him what the cost of following Jesus is going to be. Don't think you're going to do this and be staying at the best places and eating at the best restaurants. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, this sounds like a pretty callous thing. I mean, your father dies. You, as the firstborn Jewish son, have very strict obligations about what you're supposed to do. I've got a good friend who actually is Catholic, but his father was Jewish. And as the eldest son, he had to bury his father. And there is a prayer that the Jewish eldest son says every day for his deceased father for a year after the funeral. Okay? Big obligation. The guy comes to Jesus and says, I'm coming, just let me go bury my father. Now, all the commentaries are in agreement of this, right? His father's not dead. His father could be in great health at 40 years of age, 50 years of age, 60 years of age. We don't know. What is he saying? Let me go Get all my family things in order. Let me wait for my father to die. Let me see what my inheritance is out of it. Let me see what I can get. And when all of that is taken care of, Jesus, I'm going to come follow you. I mean, I will be your number one guy later. And Jesus says, Go let the dead bury the dead. Is he saying we shouldn't bury our deceased fathers? No, that's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that when you're going to follow me, if you're going to follow me, you've got to put me above any earthly relationship, whatever it is. You can't say, let me go live my life like I want to live it, And when I'm done with that, then I will come and follow you. Jesus, I am going to be your number one disciple as soon as I've done my bucket list. As soon as I've done the things that I need to do, that I want to do, that I can do, when I'm finished with that, I'm going to be your number one disciple. And Jesus says, no. I'm either... Number one, or you're not following me at all. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, and here is Jesus, asleep. The nerve of him. Now, Once again, we need to picture this. We have heard these stories so long, we need to picture this. This is a boat. This isn't a ship. This isn't a huge, massive thing. It is a boat out on the Sea of Galilee. Storms come on the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of in this valley. The winds come down. There is some discussion about whether an earthquake had occurred to cause these massive storms. I won't go one way or the other with that. It was a big storm. You are in a storm, in the dark, on the Sea of Galilee, and you are fighting for your life. Some of the disciples are actual fishermen. I'm not sure that would help. All it would mean is you know what's going to happen. The boat's going to fill with water. You're going to sink. You're going to drown. End of story. End of your pursuit of the Messiah. What do you do? What do you do? You bail water. You get every imaginable tool you can find to start bailing water out of the boat because that's all you know what to do. Meanwhile, Jesus. Jesus, who has been working hard, preaching long sermons, healing lots of people, he's been working hard, and he gets in the boat... And, like some of my children, as soon as they get in the car, what do they do? <sighs> They're asleep. And here's Jesus in the boat asleep. My opinion the disciples are ticked off. Why aren't you as worried as we are? Why aren't you concerned? <sighs> and they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord. We are perishing. What did they expect Jesus to do? My opinion, they expected Jesus to help them bale water. I mean, let's face it. Within your realm of the possible, that's what Jesus is going to do. One more guy with a bucket may be enough to help you survive the storm and that's all they know, and that's all they want. And he said to them, why are you afraid? You know, uh, I'm sitting there, one of the disciples, and I raise my hand, and I say, I know the answer to this question. It's raining real hard. There are waves that are taller than this boat, and we're doomed. That's why I'm afraid. He knows why he's afraid. They are in a circumstance that they cannot control. Jesus turns to him and says, Why are you afraid? O oh, you of little faith. Now, we just met this pagan centurion... Who Jesus says has more faith than he's seen in Israel. Why? Because the centurion knows that Jesus has authority. And when Jesus says be healed. When he tells the disease to go away. The disease is going away. Because he recognized the authority of Jesus. They are terrified because they have no faith or little faith. Because they don't know the authority of That he really has. Why are you afraid. O ye of little faith. Then he rose. And rebuked the winds. And the sea. And there was a great calm. Panic. The storm is destroying them. They grab Jesus. And they say wake up and help us. Save us. And he wakes up. Yawns a little bit. I don't know how well Jesus wakes up. And he looks at them and says, what are y'all worried about? Don't y'all know? Here it is. I'm in the boat. And he says, why don't y'all have more faith? And then he stands up and there's this horrible storm. And he says, cut that out like you would speak to your children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren. Stop that! Except, unlike your children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren, the storm obeyed. Now, you don't have to study a lot of engineering and fluid dynamics to understand that when all those waves start happening, there is more energy in those waves than you can imagine. You know, I've always thought, you know, people in a tidal wave, the tidal wave's coming, you know, I know how to float. You know, you pick your feet up, you kind of go with the flow, you should be able to survive. But we don't realize the amount of energy that is stored in these waves. And even if the clouds blew away. That energy is still there and it has to dissipate and it dissipates by making waves and they wave and they hit the shore and they die down and pretty soon after an hour you have a calm sea. Nope. Jesus says, stop it. Cut it out. Whoosh. My opinion is that at this point, the disciples were terrified. Wait a minute. Weren't they terrified before? Yeah. But they knew what storms were. They knew. They had seen. They had lived through storms. They had never seen anybody that talked to the storm and it stopped. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Whew! Gone. And the men marveled again. I happen to think that's a very mild statement. Okay? Oh, I was marveled. <laughs> I think they were shocked. What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey Him. We just finished 25 weeks of the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus telling us what life was like in the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are those be the salt and light of the world. Don't do this, don't do that. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Don't do your acts of righteousness in front of men to be seen by men. Okay, that's interesting. Why should I believe you and not this good teacher over here? Because this good teacher over here just told the storm to stop. And it did. They know at this point. If they didn't know before, they know at this point they're not dealing with some normal guy who has some really good ideas. There's a huge number of people who believe that Jesus was a great teacher. Today there are a bunch of people who think he was a horrible teacher, but that's a whole different story. There are a bunch of people who think that he was a great teacher. Jesus, Socrates, Whoever, Confucius, great teachers, one and all. At this point right here, if they didn't know it before, the disciples know that he's not just a great teacher. What kind of man talks to the wind and the storm and it obeys him? And the answer is the man who is the Son of God. And all of a sudden, to the disciples, it's a whole new ball game. I mean, let's face it. We know people who get well, right? So, yeah, he healed some people. Okay? But, you know, maybe they would have gotten well anyway. Kind of doubt it. But let's go on that. Yes, yeah, storms die down sometimes. But they don't die down like that. We're going to spend the rest of chapter 8 and into chapter 9 demonstrating the authority of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. We do need to be like that centurion who recognizes the need and understands the reality of authority. When Jesus says, do this, he's not giving you a suggestion. Now, you can ignore him, okay? There's always that option. You can look Jesus in the face and say, no. But he is speaking as the one who can control the universe because he created it. If there is any authority, it is the authority of Jesus Christ. That's why I believe our modern society has rejected the idea of authority. Because we don't want the authority of Jesus Christ. We do not want God telling us that what we're doing is right or that what we're doing is wrong. So what do we do? We reject reject all authority. But Jesus stands there and says, storm, stop. And it stops. He says, demons go away. More of that next week. And they go away. He says, disease, leave, and it goes away. And he does this to show us, to demonstrate to us that he is, in fact, the Messiah. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the power that you have demonstrated to us. I pray, Lord, that we would have the faith of the centurion and not the faith of the disciples. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.